Hi, RJ Lozada here. Before we play the show, I want to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We know we're not the only podcast you listen to, but we are independent of corporate underwriting or government funding. So that's why we rely on you. Please take a minute, go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now, here's the show. the four or five people lifted as popular civil rights movement leaders or, or co-workers with Dr. King, for example. Most people think that Jesse and Andrew Young and Fannie Lou Hame and Rosa Parks, those are the folks who made the movement. Now, I love every one of those folks, so don't get me wrong, but I tell you, it does a disservice to that great historical event. We ought to lift up the names of medical doctors who gave leadership, mothers and wives who raised the children, often alone, freeing husbands to be on the front lines, along with the women who were also on the front line, registering people to vote, making the meals, encouraging people to get involved, organizing projects in communities, teaching things that people needed to learn. That was civil rights activist Dorothy Cotton, who passed away in June 2018. As Cotton noted, we often put the spotlight on the big names, but there were thousands of organizers, activists, and local social justice leaders around the world who died this past year. I'm Andrew Stelzer, and this week on Making Contact, as we do every December, we bring you some of the voices and stories of our fallen heroes. My name is Karen Ishizuka, and I'm the chief curator at the Japanese American National Museum. I first met Aiko Herzig Yoshinaga when she was Aiko Abe, actually, in 1972. Aiko was in camp and um, was a single mother right after camp. So it started with you know, a very personal endeavor to find out more about the incarceration. She was just very tenacious in her wanting to get to the bottom of this. To be yelled at when you're walking in the streets, go back to where you came from, you know, you're, you're like gooks and just hateful things. It was just very hard for me to take. She decided to go and just do some personal research at the National Archives regarding her own family. So one thing led to another and she ended up just accumulating so much information. The government's final report, as they called it, of the incarceration that was written in 1943 was actually not the original, but a cleaned up version. There were 10 copies that were made and they were deliberately destroyed by the U.S. government because they revealed too much of why the incarceration really was not a military necessity but really based on some racist assumptions of Japanese, Japanese Americans. So nine of the 10 copies of that original final report had been deliberately destroyed by the US government. She really, against all odds, ended up finding the 10th copy that no one knew even existed. I took it upon myself to do what some people call unnecessary extra work but I documented everything I got, exactly where I found it, what file, 
but box, but record group, and everything else, so that people couldn't say, how can that be? Here is proof, officially written by top government. Here's proof. The legal implications of her findings are really historic. They were really critical for the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. The Commission's conclusion, in turn, laid the groundwork for the passage of the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which provided an apology from the U.S. government as well as monetary compensation to surviving inmates. Yes, we got an apology, a letter of apology from Bush and Clinton, and $20,000 per survivor. But we didn't make a dent. We didn't affect how this country was looking at Arab Americans after 9-11. I don't think it's really possible, but I really would like to see an international tribunal charging the United States for not living up to its democratic principles, not just 9-11 and the aftermath of Guantanamo, but going back to our situation. Aiko was one of a couple of other Nisei women who really have shown not only Japanese America and Asian America, but the world that just plain people and women in particular can make such a difference. Duncan. I am the older sister of Mohideen Moye. Some people know him by Mohideen Dabaha. He, you know, always had a tie to the community, always had a tie to the kids, always had a tie to education. Um, but I think what really sparked things was uh, the shooting of Walter Scott, which happened in 2015. You know, Walter Scott was a black man killed by a police officer in North Charleston, South Carolina. And the person who recorded that shooting gave the video to Mohideen, and that's when it all started, I think, for him. The capitalist that, that started this whole experiment of, of uh, American slavery, you know, the, we, the police have always done their bidding, and so they, this is not a new thing, and it's an old story, and it's such an old story that when we don't tell it all the way from the time before we got to these shores that we miss out on important knowledge like the 13th Amendment. He also did stuff like jump and take down the Confederate flag from someone at a rally. Oh, um, you can see what's happening right now. It looks like both sides of the crowd are fighting one another. <clears throat> While this happened on live television, a protester in Charleston, South Carolina, jumped a barricade and then tried to snatch a man's Confederate flag. The man arrested for taking that flag is the leader of Black Lives Matter in Charleston. He had helped or accommodated Bree Newsom, was the young woman who took the flag down in Columbia, which is, you know, our capital here in South Carolina. She actually climbed up the flagpole and removed the flag, you know, which just started this whole protest thing about the of the flag. When we talk about the flag, we don't get into agitation of, of race. We get into talks about abolition and states' rights. We talk about the reality of it. This country is founded upon economic capital. 
developed from free and cheap labor. Now that that cheap labor is not used because of technological innovation, we have the prison industrial complex and other ways to subsidize people's living and housing. Again, the impact on the community has not changed. It's still the same exact story. Well, he created a educational piece, which is called Building from the Block Up, which is basically, you know, starting on the block with the young kids and impressing upon them the importance of education and just community and voting and socialization, exposing them to things that they may not get in their household, teaching about racism and police and what's happening and what you can do about it and those type of things. We have to be able to take a political stance and say, we want to control what happens in our community. Not only the law enforcement, we want to control what happens in our schools. We want to control the way that our property taxes are divvied out. We want to control who's moving in our community, at what rate, what businesses are moving in our community, what benefit are they having, right? So it's a change of our character in the way that we interact with the system. That's what the movement represents. That's what this generation represents. We don't know and we don't believe that incremental reforms are going to work. We don't believe that everything's going to be better if we vote the right person in the office. We understand that the system has been designed in order to keep things the way they are. You know, the Black Lives Matter here chapter closed here because there's no one to lead and carry it on. But other people have stepped up and um, is it as organized and as as one when Mohideen was here? No, because he had a knack for being able to get all people, all different kinds of people in a room and listen and talk and do. So I think it's going to be difficult. I do think he's made a change. I just hope Charleston doesn't forget what he started. My name is Aline Andrade. I'm a lawyer and a human rights activist in Brazil. I'm a member of the Black Feminist Movement in Brazil since I'm 16 years old. So I met Marielle Franco because she was also a human rights activist in Brazil and she was talking about women rights, LGBTQ rights in Brazil, and she was also a councilwoman very famous like among the black movements in Brazil. I campaigned to defend and help the public. For example, I campaigned to help the black women in the favela and all that comes with it. I campaigned for the black lesbian women in the favela. I campaigned for the black mother in the favela. And I campaigned for the single black woman in the favela. So she was a single mother, very young poor people, like, uh, and she grew up in a favela in Brazil, and she became a councilwoman, so she has this really very unique, not only because she was black and poor, but because she was fighting for women rights, and she really deeply understands the meaning of intersectionality for women rights, so she was not fighting about class or about race or about gender. She put everything together and was really fighting to improve life of common people in Brazil to have wealth distribution and education for all in Brazil, especially in Rio, the place she was from. 
Favelas are like plots of land that are used by the person in charge, how he sees fit. The people in charge use the favelas, but they don't try to resolve its social demands. The people in the favelas usually don't vote for their politicians. They don't vote for the children in office that just work to help themselves. But this is slowly changing. We are slowly increasing the number of voters in the favela. Mas a gente cresceu a votação na favela. Marielle Franco was uh, murdered this year on March 2018, and Franco's death came weeks after she denounced police violence in Brazil. Someone was following Marielle Franco. She was shot four times in the head at close range. It was not a mistake. She was not in the middle of a war. She was a human rights defendant who was killed because she was defending human rights. People went to streets to protest against her death, to ask for police working on her death, knowing who killed her, uh, trying to fight for justice. Brazil is already submerged in a sea of hatred and hopelessness. And we are watching the raise of voice against democracy, human rights, and anti-racist movements. That is a reality that now we must deal with. And I believe that if she was there with us, here with us, she would be fighting for economic, social, racial, equality, and for diversity, because that's what she was doing. You're listening to Making Contact. This week, we're hearing the voices and stories of some of the lesser-known social justice leaders who passed away in 2018. If you're interested in learning more about these people or want to support our show, which is provided free to radio stations all over the world, please visit radioproject.org. My name is Anise Parker. I am the former mayor of the city of Houston and the current president and CEO of the LGBTQ Victory Fund and Victory Institute. I knew Ray Hill for more than 40 years. He was an LGBT activist before any of us knew there was such a thing as an LGBT movement. I have been in this struggle since I came out of the closet in 1958. There's not many people here that were alive in 1958. Of course, nobody made fun of me because I was also the quarterback of the football team and the biggest, meanest guy. So those people are still confused at whether I'm the embarrassing queer or the football hero they wish they had back. But it was a struggle then, and I hate to tell you, it is a struggle now. So Ray had three big passions. One was the LGBT community and, and movement. The other was prisoners' rights and prison reform. And the third was Free Speech Radio and KPFT, which is the Pacific Station in Houston. And into all three of those major areas of activism, he wove his uh, uh, passion for the First Amendment. Folks would get out of prison. Uh, they'd look him up through the prison show. He'd invite them on to talk about their experiences. 
over time, he created a cadre of programmers who were all uh, ex-cons, but it gave them a new outlet and a sense of purpose. There's no doubt in my mind that the world is rational enough to ultimately award those who are struggling for an end to the drug war. I think your farthest goal will ultimately be achieved. Why? Uh, I'm a teetotaler. I mean, I've got 55 years of being completely drug and alcohol free. So I have a very objective look at all of this. I look at it from what it's doing to criminal justice, what it's doing to families, what it's doing uh, to like human life in general. And the problem has never been the drugs. The problem has always been the war on the drugs. In, I believe, 1977, this was the era of Anita Bryant as she was attacking the community. And Ray helped organize a protest against the appearance of Anita Bryant. And it was the first public protest by the LGBT community. And it was expected to be a small sort of ho-hum, you know, 20 people marching around in a circle outside the hotel in downtown Houston. And instead, hundreds and hundreds of us poured into the streets and, in fact, took back the streets. And I would say that that night when we stepped off on the march against Anita Bryant, we were a frustrated, sort of disorganized rabble. And by the time we ended that march, we were the Houston movement for LGBT equality. Right here, right now, today, I want you in your own mind and out loud if you want to, I declare my equality. Can I hear it? I declare my equality. Well, you own it. Now it's up to some other sucker to come take it away from you. And you should defend that with all of the vigor that you have. Don't ever give up. All we have to do is politically outlive the suckers. On Ray Hill's uh, tombstone, his epitaph, as it were, is a citation for his win at the United States Supreme Court, Houston versus Hill. He interrupted a police officer who was harassing an LGBT member of the community, and the police officer promptly arrested Ray, and Ray established, for good and for all, that if you're not interfering with a police officer and placing that officer in danger, you can insult a police officer, you can speak to a police officer and engage with them, and that's not illegal. He was never ashamed of who he was. He was comfortable in his own skin in a way that even a lot of young activists you see now who, who didn't have to experience the things that we older activists did could never achieve. He was who he was, and he didn't care what you thought of him. My name is Samu, and I'm working with Korean Environmental and Social Action Network um, based in Thai Burma border. So let me tell you the story about Saomu. He's a Korean indigenous rights defender. Saomu worked tirelessly to protest some of the last intact old growth forests 
and endangered species habitats remaining in Burma. Local people here highly value wildlife. Our lives and animals are equal. There is no difference. We all have flesh and blood. The wildlife species that we prohibit from hunting in our area include hulak gibbons, hornbills, Indian bison, tiger, tortoise, and parrots because they are becoming critically endangered. And he was also one of the most active local community leader in St. Louis Peace Park. Uh, the Peace Park uh, initiative is a bottom-up initiative that uh, envisions to create a 5,400 square kilometer indigenous Korean-led sanctuary to promote uh, environmental protections, wildlife conservation, uh, culture uh, preservations, and peace. I can honestly say that for indigenous Korean peoples, this Solween Peace Park can fulfill our desires. It can help strengthen our traditions and culture, protect our lands and wildlife. He is the community leader who helped his people who are hiding in the jungle. He also find a way to get a food and like a humanitarian assistance for the, the villagers who are hiding. So on April 5th, 2018, uh, he was shot and killed by the Burmese, uh, the Burma army while he was on his way home from the community meeting because uh, to organize aid for the newly displaced civilians. They killed him and then uh, the government uh, released the statement that they killed Saomu and they said he is the uh, Korean soldier. Actually, he is not a soldier, he is a community leader. I can sacrifice my life for others if I have to. There are real needs in the community, so we have to put all our efforts into the work. I am not working for personal benefit, nor expecting to receive any salary. In this struggle, we have to endure with others' criticisms. We have to devote our energies and our sweat. I could stay home and work on my own business, but there are people who still trust me, so I will continue to work for my people. This is the big, uh, the big loss for us. He identified himself as an indigenous Korean person. He thought that um, as an indigenous people, he could have a Korean identity culturally and spiritually and by living a simple life. Our actions not only benefit Korean people and the indigenous Korean communities, our actions for forest and wildlife protection also have impacts on the world, which is affected by climate change and global warming. Our actions will also benefit the world because we don't engage in illegal wildlife trade, we don't do logging or sell forest resources. We need more leaders like him, and we also want uh, people around the world We recognize his work as an indigenous leader. My name is Billy X. Jennings. 
I'm here to talk about Sister Kilu Anasha. I knew her as Pat Gallios, and our connection is through the Black Panther Party from the 1970s. I was in the Black Panther Party and worked at Century Headquarters, and she came into the party in New Haven. Uh, she was about 10 years older than most of the Panthers that were 18, 19, and 20. She already had a job. She was an independent liver. Charles Gary, the Black Panther Party attorney, came into town. He was looking for an assistant secretary, and she fit the bill. So she started working with uh, Charles Gary to free Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins. The counter-revolution was instituted big time. Their t strategies and tactics against us were illegal. I myself was uh, a plaintiff in a wiretap lawsuit that was settled out of court and I wound up with about $16,000. I was wiretapped at home and in the office because my pad was a panther pad and the office was a, almost a panth second panther headquarters, okay? So the bottom line is they attacked us unmercifully. They murdered us, jailed us on anything they could find. Some of us are still in jail. Plenty of us are still in jail, actually. She was on the front lines on many issues, dealing with political prisoners, dealing with social justice issues. She had gotten her own radio show, and she then, later on in life, she had a, a video show on the cable channel. Freedom is a Constant Struggle. The name of my show is Freedom is a Constant Struggle. It focuses on the struggles in Haiti and Palestine, and Venezuela, Nigeria, and other African and Latin American countries, and on U.S. wars. On the domestic front, it deals with education, health care, homelessness, mass incarceration, and political prisoners, as well as the ongoing fight for revolutionary change. And our viewers are encouraged to think globally and act locally. She, uh fought for Palestinian freedom and autonomy. She fought for women's liberation fight. She fought for uh, Haiti, right? She was a, a champion of Haiti being independent and be, having the right to govern themselves. She was like an internationalist, in which she same was in the Black Panther Party, but more so now because she knew the key players. She could bring us relevant information around issues that concern us today. Or maybe we didn't even know about that particular issue going on and she's, you know, uh, enlightening us on the struggle, you know. We have to just ignore the damn governments who are not serving the people and serve the people by the soul. Organize, organize, organize in our communities and take care of business. We can do this. We have to be bold and we have to understand that this is a protracted struggle. And I'm almost 79. This, this year I'll be 79. I have to pass the torch. I have to pass it to you. I have to pass it on, you know, because I can't stay here long enough to see it happen. And, you know, we thought when we were Panthers and we were young, we thought we were going to see the change. But we're not. But the change will come if we keep fighting. If we never stop fighting, we'll win. She was one of those people who was dedicated to the principles of the struggle, right? She was going to be a revolutionary till she died. She would always say, dare to struggle, dare to win. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Our list of fallen heroes we wanted to honor was long, and we had to make some tough choices to put together this show. 
If there's an important activist or organizer you know who passed away in 2018, let us know on our Making Contact Facebook page. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rudman, Producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani, Audience Engagement Director Sabine Blazin, Outreach and Distribution Assistant Dylan Hoyer, and I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. We leave you now with the words of someone else who passed away this year, science fiction novelist Ursula Le Guin. What does progress mean? The Latin word means going forward, right? Just going forward. Well, that's what you do when you walk, when you, when you live. You, you just go forward. You can't help it. But progress towards what? And in, in what direction? I'm beginning to question the word progress. I think we, we sort of assume that it means progress towards something better, higher, nobler, more generous, more free. I, I don't know, but you can progress towards evil just as, as easy. Mm-hmm. It's the unheard voices that if we're going to get anywhere, we really have to start listening to each other and, and to the voices that we have not listened to because I have to say that this sort of the, the dominant European white imperial voice has got us where we are and it's not a very good place to be right now.